0: and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Verses one through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit In the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil ended Every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. So we are continuing in the Gospel of Luke, and my main question throughout this series is, what does Luke say about the kingdom of God? What do we learn from the Gospel of Luke about this thing that Jesus uh, called the kingdom of God? And the temptation story says to us that the kingdom of God is a place where we find victory over evil, victory over temptation, uh, victory over the devil. Even in the most dire circumstances, he's in the wilderness. There's nothing out there. If you've ever seen pictures of the wilderness around Jerusalem, there is nothing there. Um, If you've ever been there, you know that. This is a a barren, terrible place, dry, um, dangerous. And he's there for 40 days fasting in the wilderness. So that is where the temptations occur. That's the battleground. And Jesus wins the battle. It says that full of the Holy Spirit, he came back from being baptized from the Jordan And then immediately went back, also by the spirits leading into the wilderness. And if you notice there, uh, Jesus is actually attacking Satan. You think sometimes that he's passive in this? He's actually attacking. Uh, The wilderness was thought to be the devil's territory, uh, the haunt of jackals and so forth. And Jesus is being the aggressor here. So uh, we often think that um, the kingdom is just being attacked all the time and shrinking under siege. But it's actually the kingdom is pushing out and the gates of hell cannot prevail against the outward forceful movement of the kingdom. So Jesus is going out to the desert to win the battle that the human race had lost in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil and caved into the pressure and uh, basically joined the side of the devil against God. And now here is another man, Jesus, not Adam, and this man is going out to win the battle that Adam lost back in Eden. That's why he's out there, to be the representative of the human race, to defeat the devil in this battle of faith. And the, the battle is, is this human being going to listen and declare allegiance to God or to the great enemy of God? And, you know, back in the garden, it was not about a piece of fruit. It was never about a piece of fruit. It was about who are they going to stand with? Who are they going to be loyal to? Who are they going to commit themselves to? God or the devil? And that's what's going on here. So, I want to look at two things. First of all, this opponent and the strategies of this opponent, of the devil. And I know that in talking about the devil, that can be hard. A lot of times our minds just start to fuzz out and uh, doubt creeps in, and we begin to think this is not real, this didn't happen, this is a fairy tale. Because the devil is very difficult for us. So, We've got to talk about that first, the devil and the way he attacks. And then I'm going to look at the second thing is how Jesus accomplishes our victory and how he does that. So those two things. First, what he fought and then what he accomplished. Second, so again, he fought the devil. He fought the devil and the lies of the devil. Says in verse one again, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by the devil. And there's just no way to read the New Testament without the devil in the background. I know that's hard, and it's very difficult to picture in your minds this figure with uh, the horns and the hooves and the pointed tail and the pitchfork that's red. Um, You see all these caricatures of the devil, Um, and so it's really difficult to believe in the devil. So I want you to think of something else than that image. Think of some other image that helps you. Think about evil. What is a character that you have seen that depicts evil in a very convincing way that is a personal evil it's a it's a personal kind of evil it can't just be uh bad social circumstances but um for you it might be voldemort or it might be sauron Uh, sauron is excellent because there's nothing visible there um it's just this big red eye if you've ever read the lord of the rings um what is that thing that helps you to believe in a personal agent uh of evil that is opposed to god and is opposed to us uh, I think for me, it is the Emperor Palpatine, which, as a child, is probably the scariest creature I, I've ever seen. Um, when I was little, at least, you know that menacing hood and that kind of green, pale face that's like melting a little bit—and uh, he he turns the galaxy into the Empire. So he's he's incredibly powerful and in is evil. And um, I think that. What we see in Palpatine, we also see in the devil that his main job, if you've seen those films, uh, when he's in them, it is not to kill people. He, uh, he's not all that interested in killing people. What he mostly does is he turns people to the dark side. Uh, that's what he did in uh, the first ones with Anakin, where he tells him, you know, you are the greatest and they are all scared of you and they don't trust you and you shouldn't trust them and obi-wan kenobi is trying to hold you down this is the very thing that uh, the devil does to us all the time so that's a very convincing portrait of evil in my opinion Uh, that's what satan is trying to do here he is trying to turn jesus as he turned adam and eve to the dark side and he begins by saying worship me and all the kingdoms of the earth will be yours so this is not a, uh, not a lightsaber battle. Um, that's not what you would expect maybe that in the temptation uh, in the wilderness that, that Jesus and the devil would come and begin to fight each other. I mean, if you watched modern action movies, you would think that that is the way that evil is dealt with, is through some kind of physical violence, some kind of force. But in this case, what you have is uh, the devil said and Jesus answered, verse 3 and 4. The devil said, verse 6, Jesus answered, verse 8. The devil said, verse 9. Jesus answered, verse 12. And that's really important because spiritual warfare is not about physical force. And the the really important things that happen in your life are not about force um, or violence, Um, it's it's the mind. The battlefield is here in your mind, in your thoughts. It's a battle of wits. if you've seen the Princess Bride, like Vizini and the Man in Black, having that battle over that stone where who is going to win this battle uh, of the mind? That's more like what's going on with Satan. And the question is, will Satan split Jesus apart from God? Because the, the, the term diabolos is from a Greek word uh, *diabolain*, which is a verb that means to split. It uh, means you, you split up things. So one of the things the devil loves to do is, well, probably the the thing he most loves to do, is what we were praying about earlier, which is he loves to split apart relationships. He hates relationships. He hates trusts. And so whenever you feel yourself beginning to distrust, dislike, be annoyed by, hate someone, that's that's where he's working, to split. So he splits up marriages, and words are spoken that are hurtful. Like, you're not the fun-loving person that you used to be. And he splits up friendships where people say to each other things like, you're not the compassionate person that I thought you were. And he splits up families where people say these really hard things to each other at family gatherings at Christmas. And they go from being uh, this kind of abstract theoretical conversation about politics into suddenly it's personal. Personal things are spoken. Um, somebody walks out of the room and, uh, and there's this ice layer of ice. That's what the devil loves to do, to split people apart. And in this case, he's trying to split Jesus from the Father. And the first thing that he does in this attempt to do that is uh, he um, tries to commandeer Jesus' respect. He, he tries to pretend that he is the authority figure. And he did that same thing with uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. In verse 3, 5, and 9, notice that he gives these imperatives. It's, uh, it's, it's almost silly to think that, that this little creature, the devil, in speaking to the Son of God, would, would issue these imperatives to him. But he says in verse 3, command the stone. He says in verse 5, worship me. He says in verse 9, throw yourself down. And when we listen to the commands of a creature... Again, the devil is a tiny little creature in comparison to God. And when we listen to the commands of a creature, then we are giving him way too much respect. And that's what he's trying to get Jesus to do, to treat him as a a legitimate authority whose authority rivals God. He's trying to displace the locus of trust, Jesus' locus of trust, which is in God. And he tries to do that for you too, to get you to think that there's something respectable about him. Uh, Something authoritative about him. So that's his first move, but he he doesn't stop there. His main attack, and this is important for you to know also, very important, that the main attack of Satan, very clearly in this passage, is on the very identity of Jesus. He says twice, if you really are the father's son. If you really are a child of God. Verse 3 and verse 9. If you really are. And uh, it's a suggestion that it it, it insinuates itself and poisons the mind of any human being. Are you really a child of God? That's the place where he, he puts the tip of the ax right there on your identity and your relationship with God. And he says, are you really? Are you really a child of God? And I know that Jesus was the unique son of God. But there's a sense in which all of us are being tempted at the same time. To doubt that we are the beloved of God. So he says, Are you really the beloved of God? Then create bread rather than waiting for God to give you the bread. Go ahead and do it yourself. And uh, does this God who you claim to be so loved by really want you to be successful? Because uh, if he does, and you, you would know that you could just take all these, here are all the nations, all the fame you could ever want, and I can give it to you. So does God really treat you like a child? Or uh, are you someone that he really cares for and protects and watches over? Well, if you really are, then throw yourself down from the temple and he's going to protect you. He's going to trust. He's going to take care of you. Make him prove himself to you. So what I'm saying is that more than anything else, Satan wants you to doubt your identity as a, a beloved child of God with whom he is well pleased. We saw that last week with the baptism Uh, The the dove comes down, a a loud voice saying, uh, this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. And and what I said to you is that you could also take that to the bank, that you are the beloved child. And the devil comes and says, are you really? It's easy to believe that here in church or maybe in a Bible study or when you're praying or talking to someone, but but at night, at 4 a.m., Are you really the child of God? And I would say that Satan would rather see you doubt than die. In other words, he loves wars. He loves killing people. No doubt about that. He loves to maim people and steal, kill, and destroy. But what he really, really loves is to see people split apart from God. Much, much more than he enjoys violence. He enjoys your doubting uh, your belovedness by God. And he, he he wants you to hear him say, God is not good. He does not care about you. And he lets all these terrible things happen to you. And he might not even be real. Who knows? You know, who knows whether he's real or not? Just constant doubt. Like those squid that just pump out that, you know, pink uh, dye to ward off and confuse an enemy. That's what the devil's always doing. Just putting out lies, just befuddling your mind all the time with these lies. Uh, My favorite scene in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia is also my good friend's uh, favorite scene. It's in the silver chair and uh, this green, that's probably my good friend clapping there. This green witch, uh, beautiful witch, is tempting the children uh, to doubt uh, who they really are. And if you know the Chronicles of Narnia, you know these children, in this world go to Narnia and their, their royalty, they're very important, they realize who they really are there. And this great lion, Aslan, is the king of Narnia. So this, this witch is trying to set up an underworld deep under the ground where she rules and what she most wants is for them to forget who they are. And to forget that Aslan exists and to forget there's a sun, and that there's anything outside of this underworld that she's created. And so Uh, She begins to uh, sprinkle this incense in the room, and she uh, begins to play her soothing harp, and she begins to speak in a sweet and quiet voice. And it's it's an amazing speech. I'll only read a few sentences here. She says, uh, "'Oh, poor children, there is no land called Narnia.' "'What, or where is this land?' "'It's all a dream.' "'Tis but a child's story. And who is this Aslan? What a pretty name. What is a lion after all? You've seen cats. And so you want a bigger cat, and you want to call that a lion. "'Tis a pretty make-believe. Put away these childish tricks." And something about that scene just makes me realize that uh, there's something wicked about doubting God. There's something devilish about it that this reality is just, uh, this whole re- real world, you're saying does not exist. And this person who is so loving and so bright and so real, you're saying may not exist. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, that something about that scene makes you realize what's really going on with doubt. And that there is one out there who wants you to doubt. And this is why Jesus went around telling people all over Galilee and all over Judea, look, there is a God who loves you. And he didn't spend time trying to prove God, you know, with these arguments. He wasn't big on the, you know, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, or the ontological argument. He didn't care about proofs. And he just said things like, uh, are not two sparrows sold for five pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even your hairs are numbered. So why are you so afraid? He said things like, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you that Solomon in all of his glory is not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he care for you? Oh, you of little faith. And just again and again and again in parable after parable saying, "There there is a father out there that loves you. And I'm, I am from that world above, and i am come here to tell you to stop doubting, stop disbelieving in who you are. And Paul goes so far as to pray belovedness into his churches. And his letters, if you've ever read them carefully, they are filled with prayers. He is praying all the time. Uh, three of them... Um, Just little phrases from three of them. 2 Thessalonians 3.2 May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love. He's praying that because he knows that naturally your heart will not be directed into the love of God. It will be directed away from the love of God. And so he's saying may the Lord move the needle of your heart into the love of God. Romans 15.13 May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him. Again, a mighty prayer that God would fill you with something, fill you, uh, that your mind is naturally empty of. And then the, the, the greatest prayer in the letters of Paul, and maybe one of the greatest in the Bible, this is just a part of it, but Ephesians 3.16, you know, go home, and if you've never read that, um, Ephesians 3, the prayer there uh, in Ephesians 3 is just absolutely magnificent. Um. May he strengthen you with power in your innermost being so that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith so that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the power to comprehend together with all the saints how high and wide and deep and long is the love of Christ and to know that love that surpasses knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. So he knows that uh, you need strength, uh, you need power in your innermost being to be able to believe in your belovedness. Because why? Because our minds just go blank so quickly. Because that stuff the squid is spraying into our minds is always befuddling us and we're confused. And that's why Jesus came to fight the devil and his lies. And he does this right here at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, The same lies that the devil came to Adam and Eve and said, did God really say that you shouldn't touch any of the trees of the garden? You know, God didn't say that at all. God said you should not eat of one tree. Satan says, did he tell you really not to touch any of the trees? He he just confuses them and makes them think that God is restrictive and harsh and wants to keep them down. And the same thing is happening to you all the time, all the time. So that's point one: the devil and his lies. Point two is that uh, we have a hero. We have an uh, archegos is the Greek word for our hero, uh, our champion, our David who fights against the Goliath. We have one who has come to fight for us in our temptation, and we are not alone in our temptation. And notice how he fights back. This is very telling because uh, if you think about Jesus and who he is, uh, he is the, the Son of God. Christians believe he is God incarnate. And look what he says in verse 4, 8, and 12. What is the the common denominator here in all of his replies to Satan? And what should you be saying back to Satan? Um, It's pretty obvious there. Jesus answered him, It is written. And Jesus answered him, It is written. Verse 8, verse 4. And then verse 12. And Jesus answered him, It is said. Now, it's interesting, between verse 8 and 12, the third trick the devil tried to play, he quoted scripture too, to try to confuse Christ. But he's a bad exegete. He does not know how to interpret scripture. And so Jesus fires back with more scripture to counter his wrong interpretation of the scripture that he quotes. But the point I'm trying to make is that um, when when lies are just crashing over us like big waves, even the Son of God turned to the scriptures to fight off those lies. And that's what that's what you need um, more than anything, is the scriptures. Um, the scriptures were written in former days for our instruction t- that through the en- endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's what Paul says about the scriptures, that they give us endurance, they give us encouragement, I mean, again, this is the guy who wrote the Bible, quoting the Bible to the devil to fight off the lies. And so if he needs that, how much more do you need that? If he had to turn to the scripture, how much more do you have to turn to the scripture? To, to speak truth to power, to speak truth to evil, to speak truth to the devil, and to, to disintegrate the lies. It's like when, the, when the, the scripture touches the devil's lies, they just vanish like mist. Just, they just disintegrate. Because this is truth, you're speaking truth to someone who is trying to confuse you and befuddle you. And I guess the question is, and I know for me the answer, uh, the question is when you're depressed or when you're incredibly uh, despairing or um, tempted towards something, when you feel all alone and abandoned by God and you're filled with loathing, what do you, where do you go? And sadly, I think that in the best of times we'll turn to a friend. Most of the time, we just we just go inward. We just bury ourselves. We turn inside. But how often um, do we ever turn to the Bible? Or if you're the friend who has been called by the depressed person, how how often do you ever say anything scriptural to them? You don't have to quote a verse, but do you speak truth from the Word back to them? Because I know that uh, when when I'm attacked, uh, it's just. Sadly, rare that I will turn to the scriptures to fight back. Um, when, when your coach tells you that you're a toxic uh, person and they're not going to let you hang around the team anymore, someone told that to my daughter. Um, and uh, at that point, you know, I just want to go and, and beat the coach up. But what she needs to hear is scripture, she needs to hear truth objective truth, not written by a human, but written by God. Or when your friend posts something about you, and I'm sure many of you experience this, and they post something on social media about you that is awful, and it's a lie, it's a slander. Um, Do you know a passage that you could turn to that would, like, uphold you there and strengthen you in your core identity? Or when your boss or your coworker just blasts you and demeans you and humiliates you? What do you have? What steel can you put in your spine that will strengthen you? The the Bible was not written to keep us in line or help us behave. I mean, there's there's moral truth that is very important in the scripture. But I think first and foremost, it is there to remind you who you are and to remind you that you're being confused all the time and that there is a God who loves you and that you're God's child. Notice... uh, In this passage, the the specific scripture he quotes are all from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. Uh, Verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone. Verse 8, you shall worship the Lord your God only. And verse 12, you shall not put him to the test. Are all from the time when Israel was in the wilderness, tempted by the devil um, to turn back to Egypt, to deny who they are. So Deuteronomy 6 through 8 is telling the story, it's chronicling. The story of Israel in the wilderness just just got liberated from Egypt. Now they're in the desert and and the devil is tempting them um, to say that you are not the son of God. I mean, God called Israel his son. And the devil is saying you're not the son of God and you're not a kingdom of priests and you're not a holy nation and you're not a light to the world. And in Israel's case, they caved. Uh, They gave in to temptation. They worshiped the golden calf. They grumbled against God. They refused to enter the promised land. In Exodus 16:2, they say, if only we had died in Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and ate bread to the full, you have brought us, Lord, to the wilderness to kill us with hunger. That is what Jesus did not do in the wilderness. He kind of went back into the wilderness in a sense to relive that experience that Israel had and to not give in and not build the calf and go into the promised land and not grumble. And he did that so that he could go in front of us and fight for us. I mean, the son of God becomes a human to be tempted to fight the devil that we have to fight because we couldn't fight him alone, to go ahead of us and to fend off all these attacks. I thought about a story that I heard from a missionary uh, from Uganda and uh, rebel troops were closing in um, who were trying to take over the country and uh, this missionary compound was in danger, so the missionary has to flee and um, try to get to a place where they could be airlifted out. Well, the, it's a very thick jungle here uh, where they were in Uganda, so it was very dangerous to move through that jungle alone. So there was a guide, I don't know if you call that a bushwhacker, but there's someone out in front with a machete who knows what he's doing, knows where to go, uh, Knows the danger in front of you. And so he's cutting down with a machete. He's cutting down the the plants. He's clearing away the vines, the undergrowth. He's clearing a path. He's he's ready for the pit vipers or the hyenas or whatever, the jackals, the wild boars, whatever is attacking. Out in front, clearing the path for you to come behind him. Fighting off all the enemies in front of you. That's what uh, you need when you're tempted is to know that, that the son of God became a human to do that for you to be in front of you, to fight for you, to hack away all those lies, all those mental predators that we let into our mind early in the morning, late at night. In all three temptations, he's fighting for you. He didn't have to do this. He's doing this for you. He's he's starving in the wilderness for you. He's, He's being attacked by evil for you. He went out there by his own free will, led by the Spirit, He's having his identity threatened for you, and he he did that so that he could stand with us before Satan and shout out to Satan, we will not, not just me, but we, me and my people, me and my brothers and sisters, we will not live by bread alone. Uh, We will live by every mouth, every word that comes from the mouth of God. We will be sustained by what God says about us, not by our cravings and our appetites. We will not give in to feeling deprived or malnourished by God and doubt our father's daily protection and provision we we will live by every word that comes from the mouth of god he stands with us and he says that to satan and he says with he and his brothers and sisters we will worship the lord our god only we will not seek fame or fortune apart from god we will not need people to adore us we will trust that god adores us Jesus stands with us and says, we will all do this together. And he says in verse 12, we will not put our God to the test. I and my brothers and sisters, we will stop forcing God to have to come through for us and forcing his hand to rescue us and making demands and setting the agenda of the relationship. He says, we will trust, we together will trust your plan for our life. Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unsympathetic, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. And Jesus is that sympathetic high priest who pleads for us, prays for us constantly, every single moment, helping you in your crisis. And who do you want to help you when you're in a crisis? You want someone who's been there, someone who has suffered in that way. If, you've, if you have cancer or mental illness or someone loved one has died, who do you turn to? You turn to someone who's been there. And that's what God is for us now. As a result of Jesus coming, the the one that you turn to in your lust says, I've been right there with you. I completely understand that struggle. And I I get what you're going through. I'm with you in this. And when you're facing your fear of embarrassment or humiliation... The fear of human opinions and, and he says, I know exactly what's that like I was I, I'm I know exactly what it's like to be in that position. I was there with you. I so craved the fame and the fortune. I was I was so tempted by Satan to give into that, and I, I know what you're going through, and I'm with you, and I will fight with you. And when we uh, we are faced with our cravings for all sorts of desires, he says, I, I totally get that. I identify with you and I <clears throat> I came to defeat that for you and with you, just like David slaying Goliath. Uh, when David won, Israel won. When Jesus won, we won. When he slew the, the devil in the wilderness, we also, together with him, did the same thing. But last point, last last little point here, uh, that was just round one. <clears throat> so a very important phrase. In this passage, verse 13, uh, he waited for just the right time. The opportune time. What does that mean? That means that like a crouching lion, Satan was waiting for just the right moment to attack again. That he knew there would be another temptation later on when Jesus would be maybe even more prone to giving in to the devil's suggestion. And... And where do you think that was? Where in the story of the Gospels was Jesus uh, tempted that next time, the opportune time when Satan came back to him? Uh, if you know the story well, you, you know that it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just like the Garden of Eden. Another one of those uh, going back to what happened at the beginning and reliving it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, this olive grove below Jerusalem in 33 AD, probably in the spring, Satan comes to him and says, don't trust his will. his will. His will is terrible. His will is that you go and die. Do your own thing. You know, your will be done, not his will. And there was a great movie, um, very controversial, but fascinating movie called The Last Temptation of Christ uh, by Martin Scorsese. And in that movie, what Satan is doing there is he's showing Jesus a depiction of what his life would be like if he didn't go to the cross. And he got married to Mary Magdalene and he had children He was happy. He was a carpenter. He he was like an elder in the synagogue. Uh, He lived a wonderful life. He died in his old age with his grandchildren in front of him. People got really mad in the movie because they said, you know, they showed him being married and sleeping with Mary Magdalene. it It was all a vision. It was all a vision. The last temptation is that temptation. And Jesus said, no, not my will be done, but your will be done. And I will, I will go, and I will die for them on the cross. And I will give my life for them, and I will pay for their sins, so that they never doubt our love again. That's why he did.